Today we are um, continuing the series in the book of James, and um, we had Chuck, um, who's the, the kind of founding pastor of Colossae, come and, and kick us off. I think that was the last, uh, the last teaching that we had in the theater, and so we're talking about an integrated life. Um, James is a really great book because it really deals with a lot of practical issues of life, and the, the goal of James is not just to, to kind of talk at us and go, hey, you know, clean up your life. But really, he's calling out time and again this, this concept of if you believe in God, if you believe in who God is, you're going to actually live it out. It's going to take root in your life. And so we're, we've been talking through the different ways that, that that gets manifested. And today, we're talking about this issue of favoritism. Um, and honestly, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Uh, I've been studying this week and, and spending time with Rick and um, Derek and our, our teaching team. And honestly, this, this teaching has really rocked me. Um, it's, it's been really difficult for me to acknowledge all the ways that I've, I fail in playing favorites. And so um, I'm going to invite you guys with me to kind of get, get rocked by it as well. And hopefully at the end, we can really see God's heart and start to see people with, with God's eyes. So um, I'm going to start out. I brought a couple of notebooks with me, as, as you'll notice here. Um, a couple of composition notebooks. Now, um, this one cost about $20. Um, this one was $2. And I, I was trying to think of a way to, to kind of intro this idea of, of favoritism, and this seemed like, you know, I'm a, I'm a designer by, by trade. I uh, work at a tech startup, and, you know, design is kind of the, the day-to-day stuff I'm uh, immersed in. And this one um, is super fancy. It's, you know, cloth binding, really thick boards. It's like a lay-flat binding. So every page lays flat when you open it. Really nice, like, French paper. Super fancy, right? And um, this one got at Office Depot for 2 bucks, And, you know, it's cheap, but it's, it, it works. And... I was thinking about this um, because I, I collect notebooks. That's kind of what I do. Um, it's a, an addiction of mine. <laughs> and um, the funny thing is this one has every, I mean, everything that a designer would, would want, right? It's like it's cool. It's like made of you know, really quality uh, materials, you know, whatever. Um, but in, in the end, um, it's the same thing. It's paper, lines, a binding, and it goes in my backpack and... I can collect thoughts on it. This one's actually a lot easier to, to collect thoughts on because it's not so fussy. It's not fancy. It just you can open it. It can get bent. It doesn't really matter if it gets destroyed, right? Because it's two bucks. Now, if if um, if you were to ask, or if I was to ask you, which one of these is more valuable to me? What would you say? Right. The well, yeah. So you would, might, might go, oh, yeah, it's the content that really matters. The, what one is actually enables you to be the most creative, right? What, which one enables you to get your thoughts out the best? And, but the, the amount that I spent out of my wallet would, would show that I value this one more, right? Because I spent 10 times as much on it or 10 times more. Um, but then I, you know, was thinking about, well, which one is my favorite, and I would have to say this one is my favorite, probably because it makes me feel cool. You know, if, if other designers are there and I'm, I, I bust this thing out, they're like, whoa, what is that? Um, <laughs> now, most of you probably would just go, well, I don't really care. I don't see a difference. They both have the little black and white pattern on them. They're both composition notebooks. What's the big deal? 
But, but the reality is, you know, this one makes me feel important. It makes me feel special. It makes me feel different than other people. And that's why I like it better. But actually, this one's a lot more useful and um, a lot more practical and actually probably fills the need that I have a lot better. Now, um, that's a silly example, right? Notebooks. But <clears throat> the issue at hand that James is, is talking to us about is how we play favorites and how we look at people. And the reality is, like, this is kind of a funny example because it's, it's an inanimate object, right? But we, we do the same thing with people. Um, and that's what James is going to talk about. Let's start in verse 1. I'm going to read it again here. Um, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. He, he first starts out by holding up these, these things. And I've um, structured all of these statements um, in each of these sections, we're actually going to work through the, the text in a different order just because um, it made sense to me as I was studying it. But starting here with verse 1, um, a lot of times James uses this if-then kind of language. If this, then that. And so we're actually, I structured this first verse in that same way just to kind of to follow that thread of thought through. And so really the idea that he's holding up is he's contrasting these two things. He's saying if Jesus is glorious then Christians can't play favorites. And that's my, my summary of that, of that idea. But he basically, you know, the thing that caught me when I read this first verse was the word glorious. He doesn't just say Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of times Paul or some of the writers of the New Testament will say our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a common phrase. I'm talking about our, our, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here... James adds this word glorious, and that really just jumped out at me. And I was like, what is he, why is he saying glorious here? And what he's doing is he's setting up something for us. He's saying if, if you're believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, if you're a believer in the glory of God manifested through his son Jesus, then you must not show favoritism. You can't play favorites. And he's going to set this up for us through a series of examples, but at, at the very outset we're really talking about God's nature here. Um, in Romans 2.11, I'm not going to go to all these places, but Romans 2.11, Ephesians 6.9, and Colossians 3.25, um, all of those talk about how God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't choose favorites. He doesn't look at people differently. He doesn't look at you or you or me and say, oh, wow, Jonathan's teaching. He's special. He has my special blessing. Or he doesn't look at Rick or, or uh, Peter, who's leading worship. He doesn't look at us differently than anyone else. And neither should we. And this is part of God's nature. And, you know, um, I was reminded over this weekend uh, in Exodus 33, when, Jesus, uh, sorry, when Moses asked to see God's glory. He said, God, show me your glory. And God said, I'm going to have all my goodness pass before you. He also talked about his nature, goodness. And God also mentioned the words uh, compassion and mercy. When, God, when Moses wanted to see God's glory the three words God used to describe his glory were um, compassion, mercy, and um, forgot the goodness. Thank you. <laughs> his goodness. And really, that's, that's what's at play here. When, when we talk about God's glory, and Jesus is glorious, goodness, his compassion, and mercy, that's not compatible with favoritism. And so we're going to kind of unpack this a little bit through three different lenses. So the next section we're going to get into is the royal law. Let's jump down. If you have a Bible, you can read along. If not, I'm going to, I'll read it out loud. But uh, we're going to jump down to verse 8. We're going to talk about this idea of the royal law. 
Um, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's a quotation there, you'll notice, and that's actually quoting from the Old Testament, quoting from Leviticus um, 19.18. And it's also quoting from Matthew 22, where Jesus talks about the greatest commandment. Um, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. So again, there's another if-then. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, then you are doing right. Um, let's go to the next slide, and we'll, we'll get the next part. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And then he, again, expands this idea to say, if you've broken one law, you've broken all of them. Um, if you've, you haven't committed adultery, but you've committed murder, you're, you're a lawbreaker. And even um, this is kind of echoing Jesus' uh, teaching on the... the, the um, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, okay, you, maybe you haven't murdered, maybe you haven't committed adultery, but you've lusted in your heart. If you've held anger towards someone else in your heart, you're guilty of murder. And so James's point is if you break in one point of the law, if, if you even break in the smallest point, you're, you're guilty, you're a lawbreaker. But let's go back to this idea of royal law. Um, so when it says royal law there, that was another thing that stood out to me. I was like, really interesting that he uses the word royal to refer to the law. And why did he ref- use the word royal there? It's kind of one of the only places in the New Testament this, this idea is used of royal law. And um, I, you know, was trying to figure out what, what, what is he trying to say here and what does the royal law mean? And he's obviously quoting the Old Testament, but he's also quoting Jesus um, in Matthew 22. So let's go to the next passage, uh, next slide, and I think we have this quote here from Matthew 22, 37 through 39. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is someone asking Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's quoting there the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6 there, which was kind of the, the, the sermon, Deuteronomy was a sermon encapsulating the whole Old Testament truth, and really Moses was prepping the people to go into the, the promised land. And so Jesus quotes there from this, this summary of the, the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is one of the most important verses for a Jewish person. And he says, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's, the, again, Jesus is quoting from Leviticus here, and then Peter is quoting from, or sorry, James is quoting from Leviticus and from Jesus. So we see this idea he's building of the royal law is actually um, the word royal there is, is the same root Greek word that's used for kingdom all throughout the New Testament. And it's used in verse 5 when it says um, to inherit the kingdom. And so the idea um, is that this idea of the royal law is it's really appointing to the summary that, um, that James is making of the whole, old, the whole Old Testament and New Testament in the commandment that God's given us. So when we think of royal law, we shouldn't think of it as like, this is, a, this is an old covenant thing. This is actually a new covenant thing, which is the entire will of God for, for Christians. If we move to the next slide, there's a quote from um, Doug Moo, who's a, a great Bible scholar. And as I was reading through it, he, he had a great summary. It's the entire will of God for Christians. So we should think of this idea that James is holding out here, which is... Um, if you keep the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, really it's the summary of, of everything. As Christians, we can keep one thing in our head as this is God's will for our lives. This is what God wants for every Christian, which is love your neighbor as yourself. If we're loving our neighbor as ourself, 
1 John would tell us we're, we're loving God, and we can't love God unless we're loving our neighbor. So those two are, are intertwined, and Jesus connected them, and now James is just summarizing it, summarizing it with a single concept, which is love your neighbor as yourself. So we've seen this first part. We've seen the royal law. So, um, and I wanted to go there first to kind of set this up, set the big concept up of where James is going, because he's, he's going somewhere, and he's going to go somewhere um, really pointed about favoritism. But first, he sets up this overarching idea, which is we need to keep the royal law. If we really keep the royal law, we're doing right, which is love your neighbor as yourself. So then the question starts to go, okay, well, who's my neighbor? And, and Jesus answered that when he talked about the, the Samaritan. You know, the, people were asking Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to, have to love? And Jesus expands that idea beyond just um, our, our Christian family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Although James is talking about this within the church, but Jesus expanded it to say it's, it's the person that you don't think of as your neighbor. It's the person that's your enemy. Jesus talked about enemy love. That's all encompassed in this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so the goal here as Christians is how do we live out this, this idea? How do we live out the royal law? How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? So let's go, uh, we'll transition kind of the next section here. And um, we're going to talk about evil judgment versus true judgment. And so um, there's kind of a sandwich here. So there's James 2, uh, verses 2 through 4, and then 12 through 13 both talk about this concept of evil judgment and true judgment. And so we're going to talk about it. So let's, the next slide will kind of summarize verses 2 through 4, and I'm going to read them. Um, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Have a, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So if you give special attention to anyone, and I underline that word attention because it's, it's something deeper than just our actions. It's actually, what attention are we giving to someone? That, that speaks to the inward thought process. And then he also says, you become judges with evil thoughts. And so this is, this is the part of the message that really rocked me. Um, I started to really think about this this week as I was uh, preparing to teach. I really started to go, man, I started to think about people the way I look at people. And God started to uncover all the ways that I'm judgmental. Um, and it was pretty overwhelming. I mean, there's times where I was just, I just feel, you know, even I was talking to my, my wife last night, and I was just telling her, I was just like, I feel broken, you know. Um, and I had some breakthrough moments where God was, I felt like, granting me to see, see people with uh, his eyes. But even then, then last night, I felt like I had this regression a little bit of like, man, there I am just judging people again. You know, I'll look at people's outward look or I'll look at the way someone's dressed or the way, you know, someone acts. Or I'll look at, man, that person looks really proud and kind of like they're, they're full of themselves. And I'll just, I'll write them off. I'll think of them. That person's not worthy of, of my attention, of my love, of my looking at them the way God looks at them. And re- the reality is, is we do this as Christians. And so, one of the ways we do this, uh, it's, it's even subconscious, I think. Um, so I heard a quote probably about a month ago that said, no child is ever born racist. And I was like, oh, wow, brilliant. Yeah, that's true. No child is ever born racist, right? Like no child ever comes out of the womb just being racist. And um, there's a lot of race, racial tension in our country right now. And so it was just, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's good. 
But the more I thought about it, I was like, well, that's true. But um, just even seeing patterns in myself, seeing patterns in our own children, we have this natural tendency to hang out where we're most comfortable, right? Like, um, it's way more natural for me to eat food that's, that's familiar to me than it is to eat something that's weird. And I've, you know, I've become more adventurous as I've grown up. Um, I remember there was a time where I was like, I thought sushi was gross, and now I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like some of the best food. But there's still stuff. I was watching this, this travel journal the other day on, um, it was like a YouTube channel. It was a, a cool thing, and it was like um, showing the southern Japanese island where they had this really cool like hot springs and baths, and they, the guy was like eating all this crazy food. And one of the things that they brought out was like raw horse flesh. And I was like, all of a sudden I was like, you know, oh man, all this food looks amazing. And then all of a sudden he was like, oh yeah, this is horse, like raw horse. And I was like, like horse uh, sashimi. And I was like, gross, right? And, and you kids know what this is like, right? When, when your parents bring the, the, the broccoli in front of your plate and you're like, you know, you, you show great prejudice, right? Against something that's unfamiliar or looks weird. Um, even last night, my daughter was, we got a Chipotle and just some of the stuff in the burrito to her looked like, she's like, Daddy, it doesn't look like it's yummy. Um, and she had this mental aversion, like, I don't want to eat it. And she ended up eating some of it. But um, it just shows, like, we are so much, we're so prone to hang out where we're most comfortable. And, and we do this a lot, and it's natural. And I don't, I don't think it's always bad. Like, I was thinking, too, like, for my wife and I, it's so much, it's so easy for us to hang out with other couples that are like-minded, that have the same parenting style as we do, have the same values, right? But have you ever been in community with a family or a group that's like, whoa, like their kids are, they're, they're teaching my kids, they're teaching our kids bad stuff, or, you know, they're just running around wild, or they just have a different, maybe it's a different philosophy or, or even some different theology um, that that is it's uncomfortable, right? Um, it's, it's naturally easy to hang out with the, the p- people that you're most like, that's most familiar. And that reveals kind of our, our, um, our tendency toward comfort. We, it's easy to hang out where it's comfortable. It's easy to hang out where there's people like us or there's people that, that you know, even Jesus says it's, you know, if you like the people that are going to like you back, where's your reward for that? Um, in in the, the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, you need to love the people that aren't capable of loving you back. That's what true love is. That's what true loving your neighbor is. And so, man, this, this whole concept really has got me looking at people differently. Because I tend to judge through these, these judgmental lenses, right? And some of it's superficial. It's like, man, what does that guy think he can wear, for instance, sandals with, uh, or, you know, like uh, Tiva sandals with, like, socks, you know? And, like, to me, like, that's a fashion, like, faux pas. It's like, so I'm like uh, you know? But, or it's, but it's, like, so stupid, right? Like, who cares? And that's actually cool. And I actually start to realize, you know what? Like, people that, um, that have different styles, like, why, why don't we appreciate those things, right? Why do I become judgmental around stupid things? But it even goes deeper than that, you know? Um, Friday night, I was hanging out with uh, Rick. We were heading to a conference, and I was driving across Portland. And I remember I was driving through through the city, uh, I drove by some homeless people, and it's, it's so, um, I wouldn't have thought about this this week, but I just really stopped and was like, man, I really look at homeless people differently than I look at other people. I, I just, I kind of go, man, this, I, I kind of feel sorry for them, partly, but then it's also this part of like, man, these, I, I'm, I'm kind of like put off by them, or I feel like, well, you know, they're, they're dirty, or they're going to they're gonna have HIV, or they're 
wow, whatever thoughts go through my head about this, I'm kind of afraid of this person. And I really started to, like, God granted me this, um, this moment where I was just, like, seeing these people the way Jesus sees them. And I had compassion. I just, I f- wanted to cry. I just felt, like, sorry that they were in that state. I felt God's love for them. And I realized God doesn't, God loves them every bit as much as he loves me as he loves anybody. And to, to get to that place of just looking at people through, through that lens, it, it was a wake-up call, and it, and it has been. Um, let's go to the next slide, and Rick uh, shared this quote with me that he read that kind of rocked him. And so um, I'm going to read it slowly, and we'll kind of leave it up so you can digest it. Um, this is a quote about the sanctity of life. And he says here that the sanctity of life is the conviction that all human beings at any and every stage of life, in any and every state of consciousness or self-awareness, of any and every race, color, ethnicity, level of intelligence, religion, language, nationality, gender, character, behavior, physical ability, disability, potential, class, etc., of any and every particular quality of relationship to the viewing subject. That one... That one really got me, realizing sometimes I don't have a quality of relationship with a person, or maybe they've hurt me, or maybe they've done something really despicable, and I go, that person, I can't believe they did that. Are to be perceived as sacred, as persons of equal and immeasurable worth and of inviolable dignity. Therefore, they must be treated with the reverence and respect commensurate with this elevated moral status, beginning with a commitment to the preservation protection and flourishing of, of their lives. And, man, that quote just covers just about every single way that we would express bias. And some of the bias we have is, is just innate, right? It's, we don't even realize we're carrying it around. We don't even realize we're, we're carrying around these lenses that we see through because we see through our own, our own gender, our own ethnicity, our own stage of life. Um, and I think we can, I was telling Rick, I think we can be, be that, it's dangerous, right? Because we can start to become biased in ways we don't even realize. Like, there's a lot of young families in our church with kids, but there's also a lot of empty nesters, there's a lot of singles doing some beautiful, beautiful things. And if we're not careful, we, we, we naturally just tend toward talking about things that are, that are relevant to us. And to really stop and really treat each person that we, that we come across, even if they're not self-aware, even if they're, they're maybe the kind of person that would just be off-putting, or maybe there's a person we just don't like because maybe they're mean or grouchy, or maybe they're, I mean, to be, to, be, uh, to be honest, there's things people do that are hurtful, right? And there's things people do that are wrong. And it's not to say that we shouldn't be wronged or shouldn't have those feelings of anger or frustration at times with the way people treat us. But how we look at them, the, the lens that we look at them through, we need to have that reverence and respect that's commensurate with the elevated moral status. And I think, you know, it's interesting looking at the political climate of our country. Republicans tend to value, um, in general, um, you know, um, unborn life. So, you know, ab- abortion. Um, also, you know, tend to be against... Uh, what's, what's the word for euthanasia for, like, elderly... Um, people that are that are choosing to end their life, um, assisted suicide, yeah. Um, but then you know, more liberal leaning, you know, p- politics tend to value 
um, the cause of the immigrant, of you know, different races, etc. And we can't, you know, a quote like this really just exposes for us, like, we can't be pickers and choosers about the issues that we care about. We need to defend the life and the dignity of all people, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of how valuable they are to us. Because for Jesus, he looked at everyone as special. Everyone that he interacted with was, this is a person created in the image of God. He gave them their full attention. He loved them. He wasn't afraid of them. He wasn't off-put by them. He wasn't uncomfortable around them. He just brought the love of God into their life. And that's what God is calling us to do. So this is, again, the first part of this is this idea of evil judgment. We've become judges with evil thoughts. And that, that, um, that idea of evil thoughts has been ringing in my ears because I feel like, man, so much of the time, maybe I don't act evil toward them out, outwardly, but my thoughts, my heart, my attention... I just, I, even just dismissing people by not giving them my full uh, attention and just going, oh, this person again. God really wants us to give attention to every person, to have those thoughts be his thoughts, to have those way of seeing people be through the lens of Jesus. And it's different. I mean, our lenses are cloudy and faulty and evil. And it's not just, you know, the thing I realized, too, this is not just like a neutral ground, right? This is evil. He's saying that you're, you're a judge with evil thoughts. This is evil judgment. You're judging people evil. The, the contrast to that is in verses 12 through 13. He's going to talk about judged by the law that gives freedom. So in verse 12, um, I don't know what the next slide has. Okay, that, that's our next section. I'm just going to read verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Again, I, th- I believe he's referencing to this royal law again, the New Testament law. It's not the Old Testament law that's going to judge you and condemn you to a guilty verdict, but he's saying, speak. He's actually saying, like, let your words, let your actions be those who are going to be judged by this royal law, this, this summary of the Old Testament, this Jesus new covenant law, love your neighbors yourself. You're going to be judged by this that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This idea here is huge, you guys. Um, We are going to be judged. I actually, there's a devotional um, that I get in my email inbox uh, every day, just about every weekday. And this week it actually talked about this idea of judgment and how we often think of judgment being reserved for non-believers, or the people who don't love Jesus, that they're gonna, there's going to be condemnation. Which is, there's, the scripture does talk about that. But it, the scripture also says that judgment begins with the house of God. That God, we're going to be judged by our actions. They're going to be burned away. The, the actions, the things, the, the things that we did with our lives are going to be judged by God. He's going to hold them up to this perfect law and go, does this, is this loving your neighbor as yourself? And so again, the idea here is not condemnation. I'm not here to just throw a bunch of a bunch of guilt on anyone. But James is, is serious when he says, "Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom." I love that he calls it the law that gives freedom, because honestly, you guys, this we couldn't we couldn't live out this this thing without the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit hadn't opened my eyes this week. 
I wouldn't have been able to see people through his eyes. I wouldn't have been able to start to reverse that kind of process, that pattern that I have in my own life, in my own heart, that judgmentalness. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been possible outside of the Holy Spirit. And I love that this new covenant law is not a law that gives condemnation. It's a law that gives freedom, right? Because along with this invitation comes an invitation of God to us saying, here, um, Jesus is saying to us, hey, guys, um, love your neighbors yourself, but you're not alone. Like, I'm with you in this. I'm actually, this is God's heart. This is my heart. And I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to guide you into this, to actually help you to live out something that you couldn't do on your own. I love Rick's last week. If you didn't get a chance, um, try to go listen to it on podcast. He had a really great chart that had the... um, homo neo, like a homo sapien. I mean, it was, I don't remember what the first one was, but it was like the old man and the new man. Um, neo made me think of the Matrix. I told him later, I was like, wow. I was just, I was totally nerding out when he, but he, he had this contrast of the new man and we, his whole concept was that change happens in our lives, not by us being better, but by God coming into our lives and changing us. And so again, hear the hope in here when he says the law that gives freedom, it gives freedom because Jesus himself comes to us as he invites us into this and he says hey i'm here with you i'm going to help you i'm going to give you my spirit so that you can actually do this so it's not just an empty like good luck love your neighbors yourself you're going to fail it's like hey love your neighbors yourself i'm inviting you in and i'm actually going to help you do it and it gives us freedom because we're not under the the condemnation of the old testament law we're not under the condemnation of knowing that you know, if we mess up, we, we, we're in danger of losing our salvation. We are his children, and he's going to help us. Like a good father, he's going to help us live these things out. So then the question becomes, how do we rely on the Father? How do we rely on the Holy Spirit? How do we actually start to, to change? Last section here is the great reversal. Um, and I en- wanted to end with this because I feel like it's, it's the kind of... Um, it's the kind of countercultural bits in James here that reference back to the Sermon on the Mount that I think are really powerful. And I feel like it kind of sets us this trajectory toward change. Um, so um, I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. Um, he says this, um, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong? And so he's, he's telling them, don't ignore the poor. If you ignore the poor, then you don't see the kingdom through God's eyes. The kingdom through God's eyes says this, has not God chosen those who are poor? And again, he says, they're not really poor. They're poor in the eyes of the world because we look at them and go, man, these guys have nothing. Or, man, they don't, they're destitute. They don't have opportunity. Or, man, they don't have their life is not together. It's a mess. But God doesn't th- see them that way. He's chosen them to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him. He's promised that to us, which is beautiful. But he's promised that to the people in in our culture that we look at that are the least, the people who are marginalized, the people who have nothing, the people we would look at and go, man, like these people don't have their life together. These people, 
are, are not the people that we would look at and go, God's kingdom is for them. And, and honestly, as I was reading this, I really just, I couldn't get this out of my head, but um, it really made me think of, it felt like it echoed the Beatitudes. Um, and so I want to read through the Beatitudes of, of, of Matthew 5. And if you've read these before, oftentimes we think of it as a list of things to like do. I'm going to strive for, for living these things, like hungering and thirsting for righteousness. For really, reality, what Jesus was actually doing there was going, you think God's kingdom is for this kind of person. And Jesus is kind of going, no, actually it's for this kind of person. It's the people you would least expect. That's why it's called the great reversal. It's because God's kingdom comes to those that we, wouldn't, we would be least likely to ever think that God's kingdom is for them. So let's go on the next slide. We'll, we'll read through it. It's, I split it between a couple slides. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We think they're like noble, like, oh, this guy's poor in spirit. Real, reality of that is like this person is spiritually destitute, right? This is like the atheist. This is the person who has no spirituality whatsoever or desire for God. I mean, think about that. Think about the people in your life that have no desire for God. They hate God. They, they have no interest in God. And Jesus is saying, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, you're poor in spirit. You're, you're spiritually, you, you didn't grow up in a Christian family. Maybe you grew up in a, in a really bad way. You're poor in spirit. You don't, there's spiritual poverty there. And yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. People who mourn, I know about that. The past couple of years for my wife and I have been dark, um, losing our, our son. And it doesn't feel like comfort ever, or is ever going to come. I mean, it, we do experience those moments where God shows up, but it, <laughs> mourning is not a fun thing. And, and there's people that have lost everything. There's people that you hear about, these stories of, like, they've lost their family, they've lost their way of life, they maybe, they've lost their home. And God's saying, these are the least likely people that we would think of God's blessing is on them, right? You look at them and go, man, what did they do that their life is such a wreck? Jesus is going, you're blessed. God's blessing is for you. Blessed are the meek, those who don't have power, those who are not influential. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who th- hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, these people don't have righteousness. They're hungering and thirsting for it. They're, they're thirsty. Thirst and hunger, usually in the scripture, indicates some kind of idea that you're, you're, you're dry. You're spiritually dry. You're not... You're not <laughs> In the fullness, experiencing the fullness of life with God, but the promise is God's kingdom is for you. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Being merciful to someone implies you were wronged, implies something really bad happened to you. Um, if you had to be merciful to someone, showing mercy. And that, that idea connects directly with James. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Peacemakers, again, it implies a, a conflict there that to make peace involves dealing with two hostile parties. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next slide will finish this, this section. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This whole idea here um, is that God's kingdom is for the least likely. It's for the people that we wouldn't expect it to be. If I was to, you know, if you were to put together a list of things and go, 
who is God's kingdom for? You know, it's for the people who hunger, for, who have a relationship with God or who, I don't know, who kind of have a moral compass in life. And Jesus is going, my, my kingdom is for the least likely. And we see that played out throughout the Gospels. We see Jesus going to the, to the prostitute, the woman who the religious guys are like, what are you doing? Like, how are you even hanging out with her? And Jesus is going, I'm loving you. I'm, I'm genuinely treating you. And so the question is, who are those people in our culture that are least likely for God's blessing, that we in a religious community, or maybe we've grown up in church for years, and our lenses is like, well, you know, who are those people? Who are the people that we view as least likely for God's blessing? Or maybe we just write them off. We go, this, this guy's an atheist. He hates God. I'm not going to pray for him anymore. I'm not going to engage him. I'm not going to love him. We just kind of, we almost dismiss them. Or maybe we don't give attention to them anymore. Maybe that's, that's it. Maybe it's not like an active hatred. It's just a passive indifference. But I think both of those are evil because we're really not giving attention to the people that God has said, my kingdom is for them. And we see time and again in the scriptures, if you follow the life of Jesus, you'll see over and over again, he comes and blesses the, the leper, the person who no one else wants to uh, touch. He, he heals people that no one else would, would, would want to heal. He comes to the people who don't have anything, and he gives them himself. Even the, the uh, disciples, I mean, he, he chooses these guys who are not the spiritual elite. They're not the guys who have their, their life together, their theology figured out. He just calls them. He invites them. So um, the, how do we respond to that? And I just, one question for you guys today. Who is God asking you to see differently? Who in your life that you know, what group of people, maybe it's a whole class of people, maybe it's a whole group of people. Maybe you've written off um, the elderly. I mean, I think there's so many things. Maybe you've written off the LGBTQ community because you go, you just view them differently. You don't view them with the same love that God has for them. Um, Maybe it's people that have wronged you. Maybe it's people that have really hurt you. And, I'm, and again, I'm not saying that we can't be hurt by people. That's normal. That's human. Or even be angry at the actions that others have taken. But I think God's inviting us to see people differently. And so um, the band's going to come up here. But what I want to do is take a couple minutes, um, and I want to invite the Holy Spirit to, to change our hearts and our eyes to really give us new eyes to see people the way God sees them. So um, let's, if you close your eyes with me for a second. And I just want to take a few minutes. I'm going to pray. And then I want to have a few minutes of just quiet and time for you to reflect. And I want you to think. You can even picture the person in your head if there's a person, if there's persons, if there's people. Maybe it's a family that you've, you've been estranged from or a friendship that has been broken. Maybe there's trust that was broken there. I don't know who it is, but I know that there's probably someone on your mind, and if not, just ask God to reveal that to you right now. And I want you to just take a couple minutes and, and start to s- ask God to, s- to give you the eyes and the heart to see them differently, to be able to see them through Jesus' eyes. And after that, well, a couple of minutes, um, Peter will pray and we'll, we'll transition to a time of communion. But I really want you guys to take this time to really think and look and ask God to change our hearts because we need to see people the way God sees them.
And I believe the invitation, again, like we talked about, it's not an invitation without a promise. The promise is that the Holy Spirit will show up. God will come into your life in a new way and give you new eyes to see. He did it for me this week, and I I need more of it. Um, Just being honest, I need more of it. A lot of work to do, but thankfully I'm not alone. We are not alone in this work. So God, I just ask right now for everyone in this room that you would just give us the eyes to see people the way you see them. God, that you would give us the willingness to maybe go to the uncomfortable place and really face the judgmental eyes that we have toward people, the way that we've, maybe without even noticing it or realizing it, just written people off or dismissed them or thought of them as less than. Help us, God. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. And I'm asking right now for you to come and show up in our midst and show up in all these people's lives, God, that we would experience what it is to see through your eyes. So God, um, as we just take a few minutes of quiet, I ask that you would just be here in this place. In Jesus' name.